The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Uh, Everybody. It's great that you are joining us this evening for this very special conversation, uh, Conflict and Change, a conversation with Rory Montgomery and Jonathan Powell. A special welcome to everybody who is in our packed Zoom room, but also to those who are joining on Facebook, uh, thanks to uh, Irish Central live streaming and to Queen's as well as to Trinity. There are hundreds more joining us on Facebook. So it's fantastic. So many uh, are with us this evening. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities in Trinity College, Dublin. And it's an absolute pleasure to be uh, running this uh, session this evening as a joint initiative with Queen's University Belfast and we'll hear more from Richard uh, English uh, in a moment. The relationships uh, between uh, Trinity and Queen's have been strong, but it's critical as we move into this post-Brexit world that they're more stronger than ever. Um, uh, We've been collaborating particularly with our colleagues in the schools of English and history at Queen's through our Clandy Boy Reading Party, which is in partnership with uh, Aspects uh, Literary Festival and the Clandy Boy Estate. Uh, But this event this evening is another uh, departure to really strengthen those North-South collaborations uh, with Queen's. Before I hand over to Richard, I'd like to say a few words about the format of the evening. Um, Richard will begin by engaging Jonathan and Rory in conversation, but we'll make sure to leave plenty of time for Q&A because colleagues are joining us and friends are joining us from across Ireland, uh, the UK, Europe and the United States. And we really do want to leave as uh, much time as we can how you ask your question. I'm sure people are pretty much uh, pretty familiar with Zoom at the mo- uh, uh, by now, but there is a Q&A function at the bottom of your screen, so please use it. And please identify yourself. Give us your name and tell us where you're based, where, where you are this evening. Uh, and then I will ask your question on your behalf. Um, Although now and again, I will call on you if you're on, if you are in in the Zoom room, we'll try and get in as many questions as possible, but we'll also try and take questions from those who are joining uh, via the live stream. So do ask questions as well if you're uh, on Facebook. And I'm also hoping you can join the conversation on social media. Um, Please tweet. Um, The more tweeting, the better. Um, Our uh, handle is at TLRHub and also use at QUBelfast. So uh, we'll put those uh, uh, Twitter handles uh, in the chat function, uh, along with the hashtags HubMatters and LoveQUB. So without further ado, 
I'd like now to um, uh, turn to business and uh, say a few words of introduction of uh, our, my partner in crime this, uh, this, this evening, this afternoon, if you're in America, uh, Professor Richard English, um, who's Professor of Politics at Queen's and Pro Vice-Chancellor for Internationalisation and Engagement. So Richard, at this point, if I could simply hand over to you and I'll come back to everybody for the Q&A. Thank you, Jane. It's great to take part in this joint Trinity Queen's event. And it's a real privilege for me to introduce our two distinguished panelists today. Rory Montgomery is a public policy fellow at the Trinity Longroom Hub and an honorary professor in the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice at Queen's University in Belfast. In his career as an Irish diplomat, he served as political director of the Department of Foreign Affairs permanent representative to the European Union and ambassador to France. During 2016 to 19, he worked in the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade with responsibility for European issues, including Brexit. And between 1993 and 2001, he worked on Northern Ireland, including his role as part of the team which negotiated the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. Jonathan Powell is CEO of Intermediate, the charity which he founded in 2011 to work on conflict resolution around the world. His work has involved negotiations with ETA in the Basque Country and negotiations in Colombia with the FARC. Between 1995 and 2007, Jonathan Powell was Chief of Staff to Tony Blair and during 1997 to 2007 he was Chief British Negotiator on Northern Ireland. Like Rory, Jonathan is an honorary professor at the Mitchell Institute at Queen's, and his books include Great Hatred, Little Room, Making Peace in Northern Ireland, and Talking to Terrorists, How to End Armed Conflict. I'm gonna begin the conversation with the theme of conflict and start by asking Jonathan Powell to say something about his conflict resolution work. Jonathan, could you tell us about Intermediate, your thinking when setting it up, the nature and extent of its work and some of its achievements? Yes, well, thank you, Richard, and thank you very much for inviting me to, to participate uh, this evening. Um, well, when I was actually in number 10, I found quite often dealing with, num with Northern Ireland was a pain in the neck, having to cross the Irish Sea once a week, uh, meet people in safe houses, uh, struggle to get back for various crises in, in the United Kingdom. So I, I couldn't say that I embraced it uh, fully when I was doing it. But in retrospect, it was the most important thing I did in my life and also the most satisfying. So when I left government, I tried briefly being a banker, uh, but it was 2008, and that was not a good year for bankers, and I gave it up relatively uh, quickly. And I've been asked to help on the ESSA negotiations. They were already taking place between the Spanish government and ESSA, clandestinely in Switzerland. And they'd come to a blockage, as these negotiations often do. And the people conducting the negotiation asked me to come out, and I took a couple of guys from Sinn Féin to meet the ESSA delegation. They were very skeptical they would be real, Sinn Féin people, but they passed the test. Uh, and then I went to see the um, interior minister in Spain who was conducting the negotiations for the government. And I participated in those negotiations, which eventually in 2011 led to the IT declaration and to the end of the armed conflict. And last year to the disbandment of ETA uh, and the dismantlement of all of its weapons. And I'm glad to say that conflict now seems to be uh, firmly behind us. Uh, shortly after starting on the ETA conflict, I, I went to uh, Bogota, to help the newly elected President Santos set up his office to have a chief of staff and the structure he was going to have. And uh, he asked me about Northern Ireland. 
he'd been the representative of the coffee trade in London for quite a long period. And he uh, had lived here for I think, six, seven years. And he had been blown up by an IRA bomb on Piccadilly, the one at the In-N-Out Club, and was knocked to the floor by, uh, by the bomb, along with his ambassador, the Colombian ambassador. So he's very interested in Northern Ireland. And he asked me if I would uh, help him because he decided, having been the hammer of the FARC as Minister of Defence, he decided he wanted to be the peacemaker. And he had established a secret channel uh, to the FARC, almost identical to the secret channel the British government had established to the IRA. So he brought me in and I put together a collection of other people, some guerrilla leaders from Central America, a former Israeli foreign minister. And we set up a little panel working in secret to help them through those negotiations, the secret phase, then the public phase, and luckily, finally, to an agreement. Uh, and I could see that there were lessons from Northern Ireland. There were experiences we had, there were mistakes we made that were worth learning from. And that's why I've spent a lot of time since then working on conflicts around the world. We're now working in uh, 12 different conflicts from Afghanistan to Venezuela, trying to see if we can take some of the lessons from Northern Ireland and apply them there. And I mentioned your book, Jonathan, Talking to Terrorists. There are, of course, those who have profoundly disagreed with such engagement with violent groups like ETA or the FARC or the IRA. How would you respond to such objections? Well, um, by looking at history, uh, what happens, it seems, is every time we come to a new armed group, uh, we try and deal with it by security means. If you look back at Lloyd George uh, in 1919, he said, we will never talk to that murder gang, the original IRA. And a couple of years later, he was employing someone just like me to go around Ireland looking for Michael Collins and to start the negotiations. And we repeated that time after time after time uh, through our history. Now, every time we meet a new group, we say this is completely different and there's nothing we can learn from what we did before. When I left government in 2008, I said, on the basis of my experience, I thought we should be talking to Hamas, to the Taliban, and even to Al-Qaeda. And of course, my former colleagues in the Foreign Office uh, dismissed it, saying I was mad. It was okay to talk to PLO, it was okay to talk to the IRA, but not to these new groups. And I just observed that uh, the Israeli government has negotiated a ceasefire with Hamas and the Americans have negotiated a peace agreement with the Taliban. So people do move on on these things. We discover eventually we need to do it, but we usually discover too late. Both of our panelists today were influentially involved in the 1990s peace process in Northern Ireland, as I mentioned. Rory, turning to you, could I ask you about the achievement of the 1998 Good Friday Agreement? Uh, about what made that dramatic change in the North possible, because at the time it was far from something that was inevitable. It was far from something that people counted on changing. Could you talk about what made it possible to achieve that perhaps epochal change in 1998 in the North? Yes, well, thank you very much, uh, Richard, and, and thank you, Jane, and it's great to be on with Jonathan as well. It's uh, a real pleasure for me, given my association with Trinity, but also with Queen's and with Belfast, which is where my family are from, uh, to be involved in this today. I think as time passes, 20, uh, 22 years now since the Good Friday Agreement, one realizes that it was neither a first nor a, a last step. And it's possible perhaps to get a sense of the great complexity um, of the factors which led into it. Of course, the quality of leadership across the board um, at the political level in the two governments throughout the 1990s and in the, the main actors uh, involved political parties, it was tremendous. But if I could highlight maybe three aspects in particular, and not to be complete about it, the first is I think that the Republican leadership, the leadership at least, and Jonathan would know them much better than I would, they came to realize, um, I think, that the long war 
was unwinnable. Uh, and in fact, that in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, in fact, things were, were getting increasingly difficult uh, for the IRA and for Republicans. And I think they also understood that their campaign of violence put a pretty firm ceiling on the level of support for Sinn Féin. And if anything, the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985 had in part achieved its objective of stemming, if you like, the, the Sinn Féin tide. So that, I think, basic strategic shift by the Republican leadership, even though it took a long time to give effect to, and even though all sorts of maneuvers had to be gone through to bring the, uh, the base along with them. Secondly, however, I mean, obviously, unionist participation was also essential. Uh, and I think as Abba Iban, the Israeli foreign minister, once said about the, the Arabs, they had never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. That can be said very often about the unionists as well. But I think in 1995, the unionists, the Ulster Unionist Party, by choosing David Trimble, while he was an extremely difficult man in some ways, choleric, not a great, um, not a great political manager or leader, he nonetheless had a sense of the big picture. And he realized that unionism had the choice of either engaging and trying to have a role in shaping its future or in being bypassed, as it happened at the time of the Anglo-Irish Agreement. So I think Trimble uh, had an extraordinarily difficult role to play all the way through. But I think if we, if we could not for a moment, for example, have imagined his predecessor, Jim Molina, being capable of doing anything like, like he did. And the third thing I say is this, the people I think often don't fully appreciate but the Good Friday Agreement was in a way the culmination of or the confluence of two different processes. There was a peace process uh, in the sort of classic sense in which the main actors were the British government and the IRA uh, and Republicans with the Irish government and to some degree loyalists playing roles also. And the issues there were things like you know, peace and war, uh, weapons, prisoners, demilitarization and so on. But at the same time, there had been, going right back to Suddingdale, uh, political engagement between the two governments and the constitutional parties, as they were called then, and various building blocks have been put in place, uh, most particularly uh, the Anglo-Irish Agreement itself. And then the, there were talks in 1990-1992 involving um, uh, Peter Brook, Patrick Mayhew and others, and that's where the three-stranded idea came from. So in a way, when we, and then the framework for agreement document, which was agreed by John Major's government and John Bruton's government, 95, also brought together all of these things. So it meant that when the real negotiation got underway in the final weeks, there was an awful lot of solid work done on constitutional issues, the change of the constitution in the Republic, the institutions of strand one, two, and three, human rights, policing. And so very many of these subjects, I say, were, were at a stage of quite, you know, quite a stage of maturity. And, and I think a huge amount of credit for that goes in particular to the SDLP, uh, and also, if I can say so, I think the Irish government played a big part in that too. Thank you. You mentioned there, Rory, the long-term complexities of the process in terms of the 1998 deal and what went before it. It's now a long time since that agreement of the late 1990s. Have there been aspects of the political developments in Northern Ireland that have surprised you looking at the last now more than two decades since the 1998 Good Friday Agreement? Well, I think um, obviously the one thing which we all have to keep remembering, uh, and even though there was a, a murder, it would appear by dissidents um, just over the last day in, in West Belfast, that you know, hundreds and hundreds of people are, are alive today uh, who would um, not have been alive without the, the peace process. Um, and that's an extraordinary achievement. Secondly, Northern Ireland as a society has changed remarkably. My first bit of work on Northern Ireland matters is in the um, 
early 90s uh, when I was in Chicago, but also after that when I came back on the question of fair employment. And I, I was told not long ago that in fact, when it now comes to complaints about or grievances involving fair employment, that discrimination on the basis of religion now comes a long way behind discrimination on the grounds of gender, disability, sexual orientation, uh, ethnicity, and so on. So those are remarkable changes. I think I, think I wouldn't have expected at that time, um, in 1998, I wouldn't have expected the SDLP and the UUP to be quite so ruthlessly and quickly dispatched um, by Sinn Féin and by uh, the DUP. Um, I think I would be disappointed that the institutions had not you know, worked well enough and continuously enough for real habits of trust and cooperation to develop between the main political parties. I would be sorry that at a time when almost 20% of the Northern Ireland electorate filter elections for parties which were neither unionist nor nationalist, that we still have to operate as Grand One uh, on the basis of a you know, communal identity. I think that was for very good reasons at the time. I think we might have hoped that 10 or 15 years later uh, it would have changed, but it hasn't changed for all reasons we know. Um, so I think, but the fact that it still exists, a poor Shibove, that's, uh, that's quite something. Uh, and there aren't too many, as Richard, as, as, as Jonathan was saying, I mean, peace processes elsewhere, there have been many successes which have then lapsed. When we were starting off, when I was starting off, there was much talk of the Oslo Accords, for example. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we've seen how easily these things can, can collapse. So we've got through everything, but there are many, many ways in which things could have been better, no question. We've heard there about the role of leadership and that crucial ingredient in what happened in Northern Ireland. Jonathan, you worked very closely with Prime Minister Tony Blair, but also in relation to Northern Ireland with significant and very varied figures such as Bertie Ahern, Bill Clinton, George Mitchell, John Hume, David Trimble, Jerry Adams. Jonathan, could you say something about how decisive you think the role of individual leaders and personal relationships was or was not in that Northern Ireland peace process particularly? Yes, it was absolutely crucial, and I would echo what Rory said uh, about that. Um, it, we were very blessed with the leaders we had. Um, Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness risked not just their jobs, but their lives to do what they did, because there were plenty of people who would have been happy to kill them. And David Trimble, although quite often a difficult guy, was extremely brave. And uh, I saw it myself in the case of Drum Cree, uh, where he was prepared to stand up and do the right thing. Uh, and I do think that Bertie Ahern deserves more credit than he's got for the remarkable role he played in the negotiations. Uh, his, the suppleness with which he negotiated was quite extraordinary. And Tony Blair too, to be fair to Tony Blair, he uh, gets a bad press about many things, but I do think he again deserves more credit for Northern Ireland. Um, in his autobiography, Tony says that, um, I said that he succeeded in Northern Ireland because he had a messiah complex. Uh, in fact, it wasn't quite that. It was Mo Molan, who many of you remember, who had a colorful turn of phrase who said that Tony thought he was effing Jesus, which is not quite the same thing as a Messiah complex, but closely related. And you have to believe that you can get to an agreement and you have to believe that it can be done. Uh, and as Rory said, that you have this notion of insoluble agreements, insoluble conflicts. But actually, I think I've learned from Northern Ireland and elsewhere that none of these are insoluble. You can find ways of uh, getting to them, but it often takes a number of goes. And as Rory said, um, you know, Sunningdale could have worked. Uh, there are a number of things that, uh, if they'd been done differently, might possibly have succeeded. But you had Sunningdale, you had the Anglo-Irish Agreement, you had the Downing Street Declaration. And the Good Friday Agreement didn't come from nowhere. It built on all of those things. And as you remember, Seamus Mallon said the Good Friday Agreement was Sunningdale for slow learners. And there's something to that. And it's true in Columbia, too. In Columbia, there were 
four previous peace agreement um, uh, negotiations, all of which failed with the FARC, and the last one succeeded, but it learnt the lessons from the ones that went before. There's also an interesting element of life uh, changing illnesses and these, these circumstances. If you remember, Ian Paisley in 2004 went into hospital and very nearly died. And he came out a changed man, physically changed, much thinner, much smaller, uh, but also uh, changed in spirit. He came to see Tony Blair and told him he'd had a close encounter with his makeup and he wanted to end life as Dr. Yes, not as Dr. No. And he did actually thereafter keep doing this during the negotiations. He was tough, but he was trying to get to an agreement, which was not true of all of the members of his party. And that was an interesting change. I saw it too with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. He had been the main supporter of the FARC, uh, but when he got cancer, he started going to mass twice a day, but he also then started pushing for an agreement in Colombia. And if he hadn't done so, I don't think there would have been an agreement with the FARC. So leadership is fundamental. Thank you, Rory. As we think about the theme in the session of conflict and change, both conflict and change have been very evident in the Brexit drama of recent years. You've had long experience of the EU, Rory, and of Ireland's evolving relationship with it. What's your assessment of where we are now in terms of Brexit dynamics as they affect Ireland, as they affect the Ireland-UK relationship, and even indeed as they affect Northern Ireland's relationship with the rest of the island? Well, obviously, any any uh, discussion about the and uh, the future of the EU and the future of the EU UK relationship and the future of Ireland's place in the EU will now come with a very large caveat, which is that there are huge issues um, which will have to be worked out uh, over the coming weeks and months about how the EU deals with the current situation, which could perhaps change some of the conclusions we might otherwise come to. Uh, I think overall, um, there's no doubt that Ireland as a, a country. Um, has been more affected by, uh, more disappointed by, uh, the British decision uh, to leave uh, than any other member state. Um, and that's partly just because we know the British so well, we are so attuned to them, we read their media, the papers, look at their TV and so on. Uh, but also because, um, you know, as has often been said, the partnership between Ireland and Britain um, in, uh, in Europe um, helped sort of lay some of the foundations for their um, cooperation on the Good Friday Agreement, but vice versa. I think that a lot of the work we did together on Northern Ireland in turn uh, reinforced our relationship in Europe. And then on economic policies and trade and other matters, we have an awful lot in common with the British. So that's a huge, huge, huge loss. I think that the UK, um, I mean, I still believe, um, and I imagine Jonathan does too, that leaving the EU um, is both, um, for the UK, is both entirely unnecessary deeply regrettable for itself um, and, you know, has, be, has come about um, you know, for a, a mixture of reasons, none of which really stands up very much to objective scrutiny, even though I can understand very much the, the politics and the communal psychology which may have brought it, brought it about. I think the EU too will be weaker um, without the UK. It's been an awkward partner, absolutely, but it's played a really influential role um, in the making of policy in the EU and bringing expertise to so many areas as a foreign policy actor, etc. So even though it was always a very difficult partner, it'll be, it'll be missed. I think the current negotiations that I gather, I was talking to colleagues in the Department of Foreign Affairs just this afternoon, the current negotiations aren't, are going just about as badly as everyone thinks they're going. Um, in other words, very little progress so far. It's still possible to see ways forward, and I think we may well get to that point in the autumn, uh, but certainly so far not much progress. Then, of course, the next question of Northern Ireland, I think we all hoped 
that um, the, the principles had all been established um, in, in October, November uh, with the withdrawal agreement to the Northern Ireland Protocol. I think it's encouraging that the British government is apparently bringing forward proposals um, for how the protocol would work. At the same time, it's a bit de depressing uh, to see terms like mini EU embassy being thrown around by Michael Gove and others, whose job, frankly, at this stage is to leave aside uh, a lot of the political, it's not just rhetoric, but you know, political argument which surrounded the issue until it was settled and sorted last autumn, and now it's the question of implementation and getting on with it in the lowest key way uh, possible. Thank you. And on, on Brexit again, turning back to Jonathan, Jonathan, in your view, how deeply has Brexit changed the UK itself, the relationships between its constituent parts, the dynamics of profound political division, even the ways of expressing political division and dealing with each other? Has it been a dramatic shift in terms of what the UK actually is now? Well, let's start with the most uh, fundamental aspect, which is by leaving one union, leaving the European Union, we've actually put at risk the United Kingdom. Now, I went with Tony Blair uh, about eight days after, we were after he was elected in 1997 uh, to Balmoral, to the, um, the agricultural show, to try and reassure unionists. And Tony Blair said that he did not believe there would be a united Ireland in his lifetime. Um, I have to say that the impact of Brexit uh, means I'm not so sure that's going to be true anymore. I do think that the way that the Brexit negotiations were conducted has had an impact on the many uh, Catholic residents in Northern Ireland who used to favour remaining in the United Kingdom, who now seem to me, judging by opinion polls, to have shifted their opinion to supporting a united Ireland. What Boris Johnson has now done by setting up a border, effectively an economic border, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom is to force Northern Ireland into a situation where it's living in a united Ireland for economic purposes. That if Ireland wants to make, if Northern Ireland wants to make an impact on uh, its economic life, it's going to have to look to Dublin and to Brussels, not to London. And that will over time have a further impact as well as the demographic changes. So I think there is now a real possibility that in my lifetime, you will see a united Ireland. You'll see people changing their opinion. And we have promised in the Good Friday Agreement to have a border poll uh, if there is a majority of people who want to have a united Ireland. If that happens, I think there's some very severe consequences we haven't thought about. If we get an opinion, if we have a referendum and it's 52, 48, like on Brexit, then those 48% of people are going to be very, very upset. And we're going to have to think of ways of dealing with them. We're going to have to think of ways of how to deal with a Protestant minority in the island of Ireland. So I think some very serious consequences for Ireland, as well as for us in the United Kingdom. I think the knock-on effect of what's happening in uh, Northern Ireland is for Scotland, there, where Boris Johnson has made it clear he's going to refuse to have a second referendum in Scotland. We've seen the polls go up and down about independence, but during the Brexit process, uh, it got over 50% for uh, independence. I think it rather suits the SNP to have Boris Johnson say, uh, no referendum, no referendum. And they don't have to have one, but it will drive up support for independence, at least judging by our history. So I think the impact on Northern Ireland, where we're going to say yes to a referendum if, we, if there is a majority, will be make it difficult to say no to a referendum uh, in Scotland. So I think there's a prospect we've actually have going to destroy the United Kingdom by leaving the European Union. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen tomorrow. I'm not even sure it will happen. But I think the prospects of it happening have been substantially increased by the way that we've conducted Brexit. 
Thank you. Jonathan, Rory, you've already given us much to discuss around the themes of conflict and change. I would happily talk to you all evening, but I know that there will be people who want to get questions directly to you, and that's a very important part of the session. So I'm now going to hand over to Professor Jane Olmeyer for the question and answer part of the session with our panellists to follow up on themes that they've raised already, or to ask other questions which people think are pertinent as we listen to Rory Montgomery and Jonathan Powell. So I hand over now to you, Jane. Thanks very much, Richard. As you say, it's an absolutely fascinating conversation. And, and just to encourage everybody uh, who's following us, please ask questions. They're coming in thick and fast, as are lovely compliments about how much people are enjoying the conversation. Um, there's over 200 people in the Zoom room, um, including a woman called Joy Alexander. And I think Joy Alexander taught me English in Belfast many moons ago. So Joy, if it's you, if this is a real trip down memory lane, a bit like Rory. I grew up in Belfast. I remember all of this so vividly. Okay, anyway, now to the questions. Um, the first question I have is from Kira Demora uh, from the Irish Embassy in Bogota. And she is wondering if Jonathan Powell would elaborate on a point he mentioned earlier. What lessons from Northern Ireland would be applicable to the current situation in Venezuela? So that's really uh, 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 taking us to today. And Jonathan, there's another question directly to you, uh, from Nilo Doherty. And his is, why use secret back channels? So if we can start with you, Jonathan, and then I'll, I'll try and get through as many as I can. But please, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, well, there, there are quite a few lessons. Uh, there are lessons from mistakes. For example, setting deadlines. Uh, in Northern Ireland, we had one, two successes with deadlines. We set a deadline, Tony Blair set a deadline for a neg the negotiation would be finished within a year from coming to office. And that's why we forced the issue and got to a Good Friday agreement. We went there and uh, to, uh, to Belfast with no real anticipation of getting a breakthrough but we managed to, by three sleepless days and nights, to get to the Good Friday Agreement. So that deadline worked. Thereafter, we kept setting deadlines that were completely arbitrary, and each one of those deadlines was almost like a, um, uh, an incentive for the, two, the parties to break the deadline. They just go straight through it. We never had any credibility with those deadlines at all. I kept saying to President Santos, if you set a deadline and it's not attached to any real event, uh, you won't manage to get the FARC to accept it. And that was proved right again and again. He kept saying, we finished in three months, so it'll be finished in two months. And the FARC just saw that as a way of going through it. So that was a, uh, a lesson from a mistake we made. I think the, the one that Rory mentioned earlier is really important because when I look at conflicts around the world, and I no longer believe there's such a thing as an insoluble conflict, I think even the Middle East can be solved and will be solved, but you'll have to uh, wait till you have two things in place. One is the leadership we talked about, and the other is the mutually hurting stalemate, as the academics call it, the perceived mutually hurting stalemate. And that is where uh, both sides not are in a stalemate. We had a stalemate really in 74, when we had the ceasefire in 74. But a perceived mutually hurting stalemate is when people get to the stage that they realize they can never win by, by military means. Now, the British army realized that late 70s, latest really early 80. I think Adams McGuinness, who joined the Republican movement very young, had realized it by the mid 80s. We're then reaching out to uh, John Hume and then to the Irish government and finally to the British government. So you have this mutually hurting stalemate and you had that with the FARC too. By the period that um, President Santos came to power, uh, the FARC leaders, the so-called secretariat, the seven members, they'd all started in their 20s, they were now in their 60s. And it's a lot less fun running around in the jungle when you're in your 60s and you've got gout or um, uh, the various other things we're afflicted with in our old age. So I think that mutually hurting stalemate was really important uh, too. 
Then there were things that were very technical that worked, like the, uh, the secret back channel. Now, um, everyone knows about the secret back channel in Britain, opened in uh, the very early 1970s by uh, the Secret Intelligence Service. They, in fact, opened a number of different back channels at first, but then they settled on Brendan Duddy, who uh, played a very brave role, now no, uh, no longer with us, unfortunately, played a very brave role in, in running that channel the whole way through. And it was crucial in those negotiations that led up to the Downing Street Declaration, because um, it was the messages that were coming by post uh, from Martin McGuinness to John Major that allowed that to happen. And you remember that John Major stood up in, uh, in the House of Commons and said he would never talk to Gerry Adams. He would turn his stomach to do so. And that very day, he'd sent a letter to Martin McGuinness uh, keeping the peace process going despite the Warrington bombs. So I think having a channel like that is crucial. In Colombia, uh, President Santos revealed to me when I first went out there, they had this secret channel. He went through another, another very brave man who would go into the jungle, who would talk to the FARC and take a message from the president, the leadership, and bring it back. And he continued active right through the whole negotiation, right through till the end. He would go to Cuba and come back with messages. And having a secret back channel like that is fundamental to success in a negotiation like this. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Jonathan. Uh, here's a, a question uh, from Jonathan Cunningham, who I believe is a student actually of Professor English's. Um, his question, and, and Rory, you might want to take this, has the British government's response to the COVID-19 crisis made a united Ireland more likely? Obviously, Jonathan touched on this from a different perspective, but would you like to, to begin the discussion around that one? Absolutely. I mean, just first, actually, to touch on um, the second question to Jonathan about back channels, uh, I absolutely agree. I think, and it's not just in, in really high stakes life or death situations that secret or at least highly confidential channels of discussion are, are essential. I, I found this even in, um, in Brussels when I was negotiating things with, uh, when we had the presidency of the EU, has to be able to talk to people in a private way um, without you know, the world and his wife uh, knowing what's going on. It simply doesn't work that way. On the question of, um, of COVID-19, I mean, there are so many um, questions um, about this, which, about, well, its cause, as we know, about its course, about the policies adopted towards it, and about the future impacts, which we just don't know the answers to. I mean, I think so far it would be my sense uh, that the performance of the authorities in Northern Ireland and in the Republic in terms of results anyway, haven't been particularly different. Um, and we'll see over time uh, just how effective the approaches are. I mean, obviously the British government, from a communications point of view, I think has certainly handled the matter much less well um, than, uh, than our own government. Uh, and indeed, I think Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill, after some difficulties early on, have also managed to put forward a commendably united front. But whether in the longer term, there will be seen to be such a dramatic or a drastic difference in outcomes. And remember, those outcomes are not just public health, but they're also economic and employment. We just, don't, we just can't say. I mean, overall, just to come back to this question of the United Ireland, um, again, I think with Brexit, we just don't, we just don't know what the longer-term consequences will, will be in, in detail. Certainly, important aspects of Northern Ireland's economic life will be affected by what is decided in Brussels, uh, as far as the single market goes in particular. Uh, but not by any means all of it. And if you look at the results of the um, general election in December, um, about approximately 43% of those who voted 
voted for parties which were explicitly unionist. Um, 39% for parties which were explicitly nationalist and about 17% for others. So the really key point is, and I think Jonathan touched on this, uh, is you know, that group in the middle, principally alliance voters, but not only, um, you know, what would it take um, to encourage them to vote for a United Ireland? And how intense is the feeling in favour of either the Union or the United Ireland at the softer end of the nationalist and unionist perspectives? Um, and I think there you can certainly make a case to say that um, while opinion polls differ, that there's still quite a long way to go until you would have a, certainly a guaranteed majority uh, for a referendum in, in Northern Ireland. Um, but we'll, we'll see. But as I say, um, Tony Blair, I suppose in the of lifetimes, I'm 61, I don't know what age Jonathan is, Tony Blair, I suppose in his early 60s. So I suppose if we could all, um, we'll, let's see, if we're all around when we're 80, maybe we can then decide whether things have or haven't happened in our lifetimes. Thank you. Jonathan, do you want to come in on COVID-19 and United Ireland? Obviously, you touched on it earlier. You may not have anything else that you want to add there. Jonathan, we can't hear you. Oh, uh, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, to agree with Rory, but also to say I noticed yesterday that Nick Timothy, who was Theresa May's chief of staff, uh, wrote a, an article in the papers saying, that the uh, disarray between the nations that make up the United Kingdom over COVID, because as you know, Scotland and Wales are doing different things from England as well as Northern Ireland. And I think, he, I thought, oh, as a Conservative is going to conclude we should get rid of devolution. He said, devolution was terrible, we should do something about it. And then he said, we should strengthen it and we should give devolution to the regions. Now he's a particular sort of Conservative, but there is a strand now of Conservatism that is no longer unionist. Um, if you look at the people who voted for Boris Johnson as leader of the Conservative Party, about 100,000 elderly people, uh, the, the, when they were polled, they said that they would be happy to lose Northern Ireland and Scotland if they could assure Brexit by that way. So there is a strand now of Toryism that is prepared to give up Northern Ireland and even Scotland uh, if they can get what they want in terms of this nationalism. So I think that that will be one of the effects of COVID. I don't think it'll be, I think there are some pretty major other effects of COVID on, on, on Britain as a whole, but I think that we will carry on um, pushing in that direction. We had a couple of crises like this we had to deal with in number 10. I mean, not the same scale, and I'd say not humans, but foot and mouth was one of them. We had the terrible outbreak of foot and mouth and we completely misjudged it. We were too late to get to it. It expanded, so we had to take some really draconian measures uh, later on. And I remember Ian Paisley coming to, uh, to see us in number 10 and sitting down in, the, in, in Tony's office and banging the table and saying, our cows may be, uh, sorry, our people may be British, but our cows are Irish. Something that the story <laughs> that Boris Johnson has stolen recently from me, which I'm very annoyed about. But the, the point was that he wanted to be part of United Ireland in economic terms, or at least agricultural terms. And that's, I think, that pressure and the other pressures that come with it may, may well push us in that direction. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. So Etain Tannen is actually in our Zoom room. Um, Etain is a colleague at Trinity and I'd love Etain to ask her question herself. Etain, uh, are you there with us? And if not, I'll ask it for now, you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you, Jane. And thank you. This has been fascinating. It really um, is wonderful, especially at the moment, but fascinating to all of you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask how um, any, what is the best process to engage unionists in any debate about the constitutional future? Rory will know that 
this is a theme uh, a number of us have been talking about. So not just about unification, but about the future of the union. And given that many would feel by engaging, they're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy towards unification. So it's better just to stay out of it. So is there, is there a method, a best method of dealing with that? Well, maybe I'll, I'll kick off maybe. I, yes, as, 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 as you know, Tanya, you and I, um, and a lot of other people are involved in a number of projects about the future uh, of the islands. Um, to be honest, I think it's extremely difficult. I mean, Peter Robinson, um, another man, I think a bit like Dr. Paisley or others, who became wiser uh, the, older, the older he got. Um, Peter Robinson uh, made a speech a couple of years ago where he said that unionists should engage with the possible shape of a, a process about the future of Ireland. And I think his, his metaphor was that it, was, it wasn't that you thought your house would, would burn down, but it might make sense just to plan what to do if it did. Um, but I think, to be honest, um, yes, there will be people, you know, on the sort of, you know, who are culturally liberal unionists who are involved in business and economics and the arts, um, who will wish to engage in such a discussion. Um, but I don't know. I don't think anybody has found a way, a way yet to engage kind of, mainstream unionist opinion, um, certainly in politics, but even maybe more, more broadly. Um, and I think at times that there's a mistake is made when people think that what we have to talk about is how to make a united Ireland uh, attractive uh, to unionists, as if that would somehow change their minds. I think it's, that's almost to imply that in a way, a united Ireland is the natural state of things. Uh, and there's a final layer of course, consciousness which could be peeled off. I think the question should be that we are we who believe in one way or another in the United Ireland new course need to discuss very openly with everybody who will take part in that conversation uh, all of the many issues concerned, uh, and we need to ask ourselves the question: If there were to be United Ireland, how would we, you know, encourage the unionist fellow citizens to live with us? But I think the idea of bringing them into a discussion, uh, I, I honestly don't think that's, that's going to be achievable, uh, in certainly in a proportionate kind of way. Jonathan, we can't hear you. Thank you. Right, <laughs> Central, that's it, there we go. Um, the, um, I, 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 I sort of agree. Um, I do recall that um, we had our own problems engaging the DUP. Uh, you know, Tony Blair put a lot of store in, uh, in David Trimble, invested a lot in his relationship with the Ulster Unionist Party. And when they lost the election in 2003, I think it was, um, the, uh, he thought the whole thing was over. He thought that there's no way that Paisley would make peace. And I remember at uh, Leeds Castle when we had a negotiation, uh, we had a session with uh, Peter Robinson and with Nigel Dodds. And they said to us that if you want to win over in Paisley, you're going to have to invest some time in him, spend some time talking to him, uh, know, know the man and try and find a way forward on that basis. So Tony Blair took to inviting Ian Paisley to number 10. You'd have long conversations with him in his office and, and I would listen outside the door because I so laughter and I'd go in and say, what have you agreed about the peace process? And they wouldn't have agreed anything. They'd have been discussing religion, the concept of grace. And I'd find little tracks, religious tracks, less for Leo, um, uh, Tony's young son. But that paid off. Winning over uh, Ian Paisley over time led to the trust that allowed us to, to get to the uh, St Andrews Agreement and to uh, the final agreement on, on, on Northern Ireland. 
So my, I think I would, if I applied that to the DUP, I wouldn't go marching up to the DUP and say, join now in informal negotiations about a united Ireland. Instead, I would take the union seriously. And I think that's the history. We've, particularly in Britain, have made the mistake of not taking the unions seriously. We should understand they have a real problem with a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. They were promised by Boris Johnson that would not happen. Uh, mm -hmm. They um, supported uh, the Tory government on a long time on that basis. And then he betrayed them. And that's what the Brits have done <laughs> throughout their history. So mm -hmm. not surprisingly, they're rather upset. So anyone who actually is prepared to sit down with the unions, show them some respect and listen, uh, not, not on unification, but on issues in general. If they want to uh, eventually deal with the problem that will be a united Ireland, and it will be a big problem, uh, that would be the sensible thing to do, to listen and show respect. I used to joke in Northern Ireland that if we uh, ended a meeting after only 30 minutes, uh, we'd have got to 1689 and there would be another 300 years of history and complaints <laughs> we had to get through. Uh, that may be the case with the DUP too, but it's worth that time. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Uh, I, think sorry, I, I think if I think I think I think if I may, um, yeah, the British ambassador in Dublin in the forties, uh, Maffey, I think he made the same point about Eamon de Valera, um, but he he wouldn't even have got as far as sixteen eighty nine, I think, uh, by the time <laughs> the conversations ended. Um, just, just one little point on that. Sorry, not to take up the time, but I think a big big problem is is this, because obviously, and I know this from talking to you know um, unionist family members and in laws and so on. The fact that the United Ireland is associated above all uh, with Sinn Féin um, and the fact that the Irish tricolour, uh, originally invented by a Protestant um, nationalist in the, Republic, in, in the South, in Dublin, uh, has been appropriated by, by them very largely in Northern Ireland, is hugely damaging. On the other hand, if, as it were, you know, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, the other parties in the Republic, um, seek to, to reach out and engage in a dialogue, um, then the argument will be, well, look, why are, you, why are you pushing us on this now? I mean, both Simon Coveney and, and um, Leo Baradkark in the hot water were saying rather innocuously that they would like to see a United Ireland someday. So as I say, I absolutely agree. The, the answer has to be discussion and dialogue, but I just don't think it's possible to create um, processes in which people will very naturally or very willingly take part, uh, at least for, for quite a long time. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Rory. Thanks, Atame. As a historian of the 17th century, I think we're one of the few people in the world where the 17th century is part of our DNA. It's very, very important, isn't it? Um, I've got another uh, lovely question here from Trevor Williams, who's chair of the Corimila community. And of course, Corimila up there in uh, Ballycastle, I remember it well as, as a young person spending time there. But his question for you is, how would you assess the contribution of community-based peace organizations and movements in the peace process? So I don't know who'd like to begin that. Um, I'm happy to take that one on if you like. Please, Jonathan, and then maybe Rory. Yeah, just because this is what I, my, my, my daily bread and butter and what Corey Miller has done uh, over the years is quite extraordinary and, and deserves huge commendation. Um, peace processes don't work just by the top down, nor do they work just by the bottom up. Uh, it's when you have the combination of the two that you're likely to succeed. The sort of high politics of things needs to be there because otherwise you can't get to an agreement. But unless communities are being reconciled, then you're very unlikely to get to an agreement too. And the demand for peace from underneath is enormously important. Uh, if you think of the women's movement and, and so on. So uh, I think the two have to go hand in hand. We're working now in Afghanistan, for example. In Afghanistan, the agreement Hopefully, we're now going to get into uh, intra-Afghan uh, negotiations, although 
the ghastly murders of the uh, babies in the maternity unit uh, in the last few days and the murder at the funeral have made that slightly more distant than it would have been. But unless you also build uh, amongst the tribes and unless you build amongst the local communities, uh, you will not get to a peace agreement. So in my judgment, it's the two things going together. Unless you have the prospect of a political peace, the, the stuff beneath can go on and not actually achieve the, the eventual goal you want, or at least not in the short term. And if you just have the top level stuff, it will collapse quite quickly uh, unless it's got the underneath uh, building of the community. You think about Belfast, where we now have more, um, as I understand it still, more um, uh, peace walls than when we signed the Good Friday Agreement. You have to have that community work. You have to have that cross-sectarian work uh, if you're going to succeed. Yeah, I mean, very briefly, I would agree entirely with Jonathan. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement was undoubtedly essentially a top-down uh, process, you know, at least in its negotiation. Uh, and in a way, the two governments played the central role uh, along then with uh, with the UUP, the SDLP and, 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 and Sinn Féin, and the other parties played their part as well, of course. I suppose the, the question I would ask, and it'd be interesting to, you know, at some point to get a, a view from, from Mr. Williams or others, um, that while there's a lot of people who have invested a tremendous amount of energy and goodwill and sincerity in, in a whole range of, of programmes, and many of which are supported by the EU uh, peace, uh, peace programme in, in Northern Ireland, and indeed, I remember when I was Irish ambassador to the EU, bringing some EU colleagues here, and they were immensely impressed by some of the work that was being done you know, with EU money by these people. On the other hand, despite that huge investment, how is it, as Jonathan says, that divisions remain so, um, so acute in the most sensitive communities? How broadly has reconciliation, in fact, extended across Northern Ireland? And how do organizations like this assess their own long-term contribution I mean, these are very difficult questions. And um, as I say, the, the two sides have to work together. But and like I said earlier, I, don't, I think we might have hoped for further progress to be made in, uh, in the desectarianization of Northern Ireland over the last 22 years. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to try and get a couple more questions in. Connor Houston, who's the founder of uh, Connected Citizens, and uh, Connor, lovely that you're in the room. Would you like to ask your question uh, uh, quickly if you're there, Connor? Thanks very much, Jane, and uh, thank you to all the contributors for what has been a really superb conversation this evening and really uh, stimulating and an informed conversation. Um, my, my question uh, really relates to the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, I was a teenager when the agreement was signed. Um, I'm an advocate for um, realising the spirit and values of the agreement. My question is, has the time come for Good Friday Agreement 2.0? And uh, what I mean by that is, has the time come to take the spirit and values, mutual respect, reconciliation, totality of relationships, uh, the, the multiple identities uh, that, that exist here and actually say, well, how do we realize them fit for the 21st century? How do we take what um, each of those concepts means and realize them fit for the needs of citizens today? Um, so not focusing on a binary outcome or uh, what's except the border pause part of the agreement, um, actually having the courage to say perhaps what we actually need to do is take the spirit and values of the agreement and realise them for the needs of society uh, today. Thanks very much, Connor. Uh, Rory, do you want to begin? Yeah, yes, I, I will. And hi, hi there, Connor. Um, nice, to, nice to hear you. Um, 
I think, yes, there are certainly aspects of the agreement which need to be looked at again. As I said earlier on, um, I do think, I think even Mark Durkin said this early on, I mean, I think it's still unfortunate that 22 years on, um, members in the Assembly still have to categorise themselves as unionist or nationalist um, for purposes of their votes being counted in certain key votes, for example. Um, but if I may, it's not a full answer to your question, and I think it's, I think it would be no harm at all to have a fairly comprehensive review of the agreement. But this is the important proviso. Once we felt that the institutions were functioning well enough and in a stable enough way uh, for these uh, discussions to be productive and not destabilizing and not to become immediately a kind of a proxy for a, a debate about the United Ireland, just uh, maybe I, I was wrong, but I thought I may be inferred from your question. Um, the suggestion that perhaps, again, this question of, as, as Jonathan said, the 50% plus one um, a question of a majority, um, uh, you know, it, it, whether that is, is, is satisfactory. My own view is, and I, I just recently was reading Seamus Mallon's very powerful arguments as to why um, this should not be the basis of which union would occur. This issue was thoroughly looked at at the time of the negotiations. I personally find it unimaginable that a formal change to the rules could be made or would be acceptable uh, to, uh, to most of nationalist opinion in, in Northern Ireland. The question, I think, is more perhaps more for the nationalist uh, majority in the Republic and some nationalists in North to think about having the right to do something is one thing, the circumstances in which you exercise that right and the timing of it may be others. Um, and so that's perhaps a, a question for, for, for consideration um, but I think you are not, you're not going, I think it's, it's illusory to think that you could get agreement to move away from a majority vote. I remember a Sinn Féin person asking me literally on the last night of the negotiations, well, if you mean simple majority, why don't you say simple majority? And I remember we said, well, I said, look, a majority is a majority, is a simple majority, unless it's a qualified majority, and it isn't a qualified majority. So yes, yes certainly come back to talking about the, uh, the principles, to look again at these questions of sectarianism and integration, really important questions. Look again at how the institutions might be able to work better. Look again at some of the political elements. But I think the fundamental architecture is not going to change. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan, I'm actually going to move on to the final question, if I may, um, yep. uh, just because we are running out of time, sadly. And the final questions, uh, actually, they both relate to leadership. So Julia Hoey, who joins us from Kerry, she says, does Jonathan Powell envisage the emergence of the type of leadership required to facilitate a solution in the Middle East in the near future? So that's very specifically to you, Jonathan. But there's a related leadership question from Alison Milton, who's the Irish ambassador in Colombia. Great that you're with us tonight, uh, Alison. Uh, both speakers spoke about the importance of leadership to sustain agreement and peace. Any advice from the Northern Irish experience on how to incentivize or support new government leaders who weren't part of peace negotiations to assume ownership and vested interest in its continued success? So if I could start with Jonathan and uh, then Rory, please, Jonathan. Right. Well, those are two pretty tough questions, but let's start with the yeah. Middle East peace process. In two um, minutes. In two <laughs> minutes. Right. OK. Uh, the Middle East peace process. Uh, the reason you're not going to get anywhere in the Middle East peace process at the moment is because you do not have the leadership on either side that is going to uh, make the sacrifices and take the uh, bold initiatives necessary to get to peace. Bibi Netanyahu has never been interested in peace in my experience of working with him when I was in government and still isn't. And on the Palestinian side, you have a gerontocracy in power who also are not in a position to take the bold steps 
and the Trump uh, initiative is making things even worse from that point of view. Furthermore, you do not have what I said earlier, as Zartman's, and I noticed someone commented on this, uh, uh, perceived mutually hurting stalemate. It's a bit like Cyprus. Uh, the wall basically worked. There are no suicide bombs in Israel. So why should the Israeli population take a risk making peace? So you have neither leadership nor perceived mutually hurting stalemate. Therefore, I am very um, uh, pessimistic. You also have, of course, the issue of Hamas being separated from the PLO. Unless you have those two coming together, how do you get to a negotiation? You can't negotiate with two separate bodies like that. In terms of Colombia and incentivizing new leaders, this is a very uh, difficult question. Um, what happened in Colombia, of course, was that the FARC kept delaying the agreement later and later. We kept saying to them, the trouble with doing this is you're then pushing into a new president who may not be as sympathetic uh, to your case as uh, Santos has been. And that turned out to be the case. Uh, President Santos's predecessor, President Uribe, spent the whole time of Santos's time in office campaigning against the peace negotiations. And he actually, Santos managed to actually lose uh, the um, referendum uh, on the peace process. It's quite hard to lose a referendum on a peace process, but he managed to do it uh, by a number of miscalculations uh, and with the help of Uribe fighting against it. The president who succeeded Santos was a protege of Uribe's who was uh, thrust into office exactly because of that and therefore had very little interest in implementing it. So trying to build that political consensus is something we often hear from, from armed groups. They often ask us, we need a super constitutional agreement because we want all parties to be tied into this. And almost never does it work. It worked up for a while in the Philippines, but finding that way of persuading the whole polity to accept it uh, is very difficult. In Britain, of course, we did have that because we had um, bipartisanship. Tony Blair supported John Major, and the Tories sort of supported us when we were making peace. Unless you can get that, it's very hard to have the successor implement the agreement. Rory, we can't hear you. Rory, we can't hear you. Right, so can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, hello, Alison. Uh, great, to, great to hear you, uh, to hear from you. Two questions to the Irish Embassy in Colombia. Um, you'll, you'll, win, you'll win brownie points, tell um, our Secretary General. Um, but, no, but no, I, I think it was the Brecht who said, happy the land uh, which has no need of heroes. Um, and I think there is a tendency to think that there are these titanic figures um, who reach agreement and that uh, you know, people then struggle to live up to them thereafter. And you know, it was true that in the 1990s and early 2000s in Northern Ireland, we were blessed with leaders of tremendous stature, it has to be said. I think the reality is that um, you cannot expect, you cannot rely on, on heroes. Uh, they don't live forever, first of all, and not everybody who is a political leader is a, is a hero, far, far from it. So in a way, you have to, I think, just hope that political experience, the trial and error, um, that you know, watching people who are older or more experienced at the, at the beginning of a career, that all of these things can, can have an impact uh, on successive generations of leaders. Uh, in a funny way, I suppose, in Northern Ireland, um, there have been so many crises since the Good Friday Agreement um, that different people have had practice then in reaching, um, in, 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 in reaching agreements um, who weren't there necessarily at the beginning, such as Paisley and Robinson, most recently, obviously, Arlene Foster and, uh, and, and Michelle O'Neill and, and others. So in a way, but not that that is something we would recommend, I think we wouldn't recommend sort of uh, education through, uh, through crisis. Uh, but I think there's no particular formulation. Um, I think those who were involved should always be available to help and offer advice. Um, but each generation has to make its own way. And this is as true, I think, of officials and, uh, 
academics, intellectuals and others as it is of, uh, of political leaders. Thank you very much, Rory. Um, uh, obviously, we, this conversation could just keep on going. Lots more questions coming in, uh, comments about, would have liked to have heard more about sectarianism and, and many other issues, but sadly, we're gonna have to wrap it up. I just want to make one or two announcements before we thank um, our uh, uh, fabulous, fabulous speakers. Um, the Trinity Longrim Hub has a series on rethinking democracy in an age of pandemic. We run this with our colleagues in Columbia, Columbia, New York, uh, uh, <laughs> fellows in the Heyman, uh, and uh, it's on uh, Wednesday, 20th of May, this Wednesday at 6.30. Uh, uh, so hopefully some of you will be able to uh, uh, join us for that. Um, we also on Thursday are launching the Cambridge uh, University Press Irish Literature in Transition. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because volume one is edited by Maura Hazlitt uh, and she is of course in the English uh, School of English in Queens and uh, I think it's volume four is edited by Eve Patton who is in the School of English here in Trinity and is another lovely example of this uh, uh, collaboration that just goes on quietly between Queens and uh, Belfast and I'm sure Richard you'll agree that it's lovely to have two events in the same week, but we don't do nearly enough together. And hopefully the conversation this evening uh, will be the beginning of many more. And uh, again, especially important in the times uh, in which we're living. So I just simply want to end now by thanking a few people. Um, technically, we are so grateful to Francesca, Aoife and the team in the Trinity Longroom Hub who make these events run so smoothly. Uh, we're incredibly grateful to everybody who's joined us this evening. There were over 200 people in the Zoom room, absolutely cracking questions. Uh, we just needed more time. So thank you so much for joining us in the Zoom room, but also on uh, the live stream. We will be putting all of this up online. So if you want to listen again, um, it'll be, uh, uh, the, you can easily uh, go to the playbacks. I want to thank uh, Richard English, uh, uh, my uh, uh, co-host uh, in Queens, but above all, uh, Rory Montgomery and Jonathan Powell for such a fascinating discussion, just bristling with insights. Uh, uh, and so wherever you are, join with me now uh, uh, in thanking them in the customary way. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, good night and stay well. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.